I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 186 of the Intercooler Podcast with me, Dan Prosser, and not Andrew Frankel this week. He's on holiday, um, but we've got, I think, an excellent stand-in. Blake Hinsey. Hello, Blake. Thanks for taking the time to do this podcast. Hey, Dan. How are you doing today? Really good. Really good. So let me explain who Blake is for those who don't know. You are a former F1 performance engineer, um, and we'll come on to your credentials in that space in a moment, turned podcaster, YouTuber, content creator. That's a really interesting journey that you've had there. Let me get the plug in for your, your channels now. What you're looking for is the, the YouTube channel or the Instagram account called Break. That's Break with three R's. You've got 120,000 YouTube subs, 111,000 Instagram followers. You've only been going 18 months or something. So looking at those numbers, I mean, it seems to be going well, this content stuff for you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I guess when you take a step back and look at it on the scale of two years, it feels like, wow, that looks pretty good. But like, I guess the, the eventual content grind you're looking at two mm. days ago, it's like nothing happened in the last two days. It must be going terribly. But I think that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a getting in the right headspace thing. But yeah, it's been a really interesting transition because honestly, I never really had any intention of, uh, being a motorsport content creator it was kind right? of something yeah it was i i i basically i think let's let's cut to it real quick i basically did tw- 10 years of formula one mm. six years track side four years uh in the factory doing development work after that and then i was like you know what i want a different challenge and i thought i was going to do i was i thought it was going to be a warzone gaming content creator because i'd been streaming and gaming warzone through lockdown as everybody unfolded a bunch of new hobbies and things they enjoyed through lockdown i'm sure and that was one of mine i was like I could make some, I could make a living off of this, I think. And then I was like, hmm, I, I don't, something's missing here. And I was yeah. like, okay, well, why don't I start doing content about Formula One? Mm. 
and that's that's how it happened it wasn't really like a deliberate thing to leave motorsport to do motorsport content right. it was let's take a break from motorsport do something else and i was like mm, you know what i don't love that as much as mm-hmm. i still got the itch i still want to analyze formula one data i still want to look at stuff i want to have conversations with people and like i don't have an office full of people to talk to anymore but mm-hmm. i've got a internet of millions of people that i could potentially have conversations with so i think that kind of summarizes that bit well what you're doing is and maybe i've got a bone to pick with you here you're making (laughs) the rest of us who write and talk about f1 look a bit silly because you've got a background in the sport 10 years as an engineer you understand it inside out and upside down um the way the rest of us from the outside probably can't but let's establish your credentials as you said 10 years in f1 as an engineer six of those track side as a performance engineer you worked hand in hand with max verstappen for two years, 2016 and 2017, mm. um, you won a handful of races with him. So we'll yep. come on to that in a little bit. I'm intrigued about how an American finds you're from Texas, aren't you? How you find yourself in the world of F1? I mean, wouldn't it have been so much easier to get into IndyCar or NASCAR or something? That's a really great question. And honestly, that was my first approach is like, well, let me try to find a job in. Uh, NASCAR IndyCar sent out loads of resumes and CVs and emails. I got very few calls back, no, really? mostly no calls back. And I think there was, I think that's easier to qualify that before that. So I started um, club racing Spec MX5 with my father, right? Yeah. And it was like, cool. I, I think that's cool. I didn't know what I wanted to do academically, professionally at that point. And uh, we were fortunate enough to have a family friend that said, hey, here's some MX5s. That turned me on to mechanical engineering, which turned me on to the Formula SAE, or in the UK and Europe, it's Formula Student Program. And then from there, it was the hook. I was like, I need to go work in motorsport. No luck, IndyCar, no luck, NASCAR. And then it was like, oh, I see a lot of other Americans going to Oxford Brooks University to get a job in F1. And a lot of them had converted that that master's degree into a job in the industry. I was like, cool, let's do that. So yeah, I hadn't re- I hadn't lived outside of Texas. I was 25 when I moved to the UK, and I have lived here ever since then. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, there's your background there. You did study mechanical engineering um, at Arlington, Texas. Then you did the motorsport master's degree at Oxford Brooks in the UK, involved mm. in Formula Student. Um, and, I mean, tell me about that kind of grounding. Is that a, a fairly well-trodden path then, through Oxford Brooks, the Formula Student program, into... A professional career in racing in terms of if you looked at all the career paths i think there's quite a, a s- significant statistical correlation to people that have done that program I, I know quite a few people but there's there's people from literally all over the world now in mm. in in the formula one industry but I, at the time there was a couple of us um renault has um john howard's race engineering uh gasly now at alpine he was two years before me or a year before me at Oxford Brooks. I know him quite well. So there's there's a lot of a lot of really interesting people that have, you know, come into Formula One, gone up the ranks, or come into Formula One, gone back to the US. But yeah, there's a lot of people that have taken that path. And yeah, I think mechanical engineering and, and there's a lot of people that are let's say involved in Formula SA Formula student. I wasn't just involved in it. I was consumed by it. Mm. And it was it was one of those things where there's a handful of people that get the bug badly. And even if it, they get stuck in completely and they uh yeah they turn it into their entire personality which is not probably yeah. not, you know it's not the best thing for having a really well-rounded life because i don't i don't think i took a vacation or anything for like 
I don't know, I did five years of Formula SAE throughout my undergrad and master's and then straight into Force India mm. as a vehicle dynamics engineer. Then eight months later, I was trackside for the next six years. So I think you did three years with Force India, didn't you, before switching yep. across to Red Bull? Yeah. Um, and you're working with Daniel Kvyat uh, initially, I think, weren't you? Yep. I took the job to be Sebastian Vettel's performance engineer. Oh. And then in Japan that year, he announced he was going to Ferrari. Brilliant. And, Thanks, and then, Yeah, exactly. I, I would have loved to work with Seb, honestly, but I, I, Danny's one of my favorite people that I've, I've met in the industry, and he's such an awesome dude. But uh, interestingly, I have a, a story that a lot of people don't know, but I was... So performance engineers and race engineers work together with a driver. I was performance engineering on the same car that GP Lambiese was race engineering at Force India. And then, lo and behold, I got the job at Red Bull. And then two months later, GP tells me he's leaving, and he doesn't tell me where. Mm. And then in Belgium that year, he, it comes out that he's going to Red Bull. And he was like, hey, did you, did you check Twitter this morning? I was like, dude, it's Sunday before the race. I'm not checking Twitter. I don't use Twitter. I do now. Um, and then it was confirmed that GP was also going to Red Bull as well. So I worked with GP another three years at the track with Kvyat and then later Max. So that, yeah. was, that, was, that was a lot of fun. So, t- I mean... Tell me about Max Verstappen, 2016. Of course, we we remember that Kvyat and Verstappen swapped seats, didn't they, at um, at Toro Rosso and and Red Bull? So Max comes in in his rookie year, um, only a few races in. Is it was it his rookie year? It was wasn't it 16? Uh, no, I think it was one. I think he did a year before he that. Did with a Toro year before? Okay, so it's year two. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> but we, I think most of us recognise that Verstappen looked like a ferocious talent. Yeah, and of and course, I think we know that's true now. But yeah. I, I think being ferocious was quite key because at the time he was, yeah. you know, he was he was known for being very aggressive, and a lot of people it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But I think he learned a lot of those very difficult lessons very early, and now you see him very controlled. I think, mm. and at, at times he's still definitely a lot more aggressive than a lot of the other people. But it's it's very interesting to see. That. But when he showed up at Red Bull, he was I, f- I forget how young he is was at the time and yeah. still is, but uh. He was just super down to earth, super chilled out, very approachable, very friendly guy, and very quick in the simulator, which really doesn't always mean anything because we've had lots of people that have been quick in the sim. And you know, when you go to the track to put it together, they don't learn as quickly or they don't adapt as quickly as others. But he was he was outstanding out, out of the box, honestly. And then the first race, he barely got qualified, out qualified by Daniel, and and then went on to win that race. I think Daniel was a bit unlucky with the strategy, but that's. That's racing as well. Max mm. was there. He fought off Kimi, and uh, it was that, that was my first win. That was GP's first win in Formula One, and obviously Max's uh, first win. Which yeah, was so that's the 2016 Spanish Grand Prix when we remember Rosberg and Hamilton, the two Mercedes, took each other mm. out um, on the first lap, and then Max, in his first race for Red Bull, goes and wins the thing. Um, so what do, what are you seeing then in this young kid? Is it just astonishing speed? What's he doing in the car that makes him so quick? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think a lot of it's been discussed quite extensively because, but I think it's one of those narratives like you, you'll see the the media lock onto certain narratives, and sometimes the narratives are nonsense. But the, one of the narratives that it's absolutely true is the first thing is he's able to deal with a relatively unstable car, and mm. as many people know, is the more pointy or the more unstable and more front end the car has, the faster it will go if you can keep it on the track. And he can do that quite well. 
The other thing was it wasn't quite apparent in the first race, but the second and third race with us, it was very apparent that he got up to speed very quickly. And his, his pace in free practice one out of the doors was very fast. And it was like, what's going on here? Whereas a lot of other people just build up throughout the weekend, free practice one, you know, do a low fuel run, check the high fuel balance and out of the doors, second lap. It's like, what are these sector times? What are we looking at here? What's going on? Is is Daniel sleeping or something? And it wasn't that. It was just the fact that we were taken aback by how quickly he was pushing so early in the session. You know, cold tires, not really cold tires, but like dirty track, mm. low grip conditions. And he's taking more risks than other people quite early. And that helped him get up to speed very quickly in a race weekend because he was already on the pace. And wow. it was just it was just something different. Like there's no there's no rewards for being, you know, you know, losing your nearly losing it in free practice when there's no mm-hmm. rewards. And often, like I remember Austria, there was the uh, the sausage or baguette curbs on the outside of the high speed six seven, or maybe it was five six at the time or whatever it was. The two left handers. We come back in. It's like, yep, need to replace the floor. We need to replace the front wing. And he's like, I'm just finding out where the limits are. It's like, yeah, but that's the only wing we've got there. So <laughs> that was that was that was interesting. But um, wow. I I really enjoyed that, and I, I really wish looking back on that that the car was a little bit more reliable mm. and the, the the Renault engine was a little bit better um at that time and I think but you know what they're they're enjoying plenty of success now and I'm I'm happy sitting on the sidelines without all the politics and aggro and just watching them uh do an exceptional job sure well we'll yeah we will come back to some of that um but while we're talking about Max Verstappen and what makes him special you before you work with Max you did work with Sergio Perez Yep. As his performance engineer. Um, and I mean, I hold all of these guys in such high regards. If you can operate one of these cars at race speed, if you can win in one, if you can qualify on pole, you're God level hero to me. You know, you yep. just are. Yeah, yeah. But there are levels. And we've seen it this year that Perez, on his day, he can give Max a fright, but he's not on Max's level. And can you try and boil that down? What What is the difference between difference between a Verstappen and a very good multiple Grand Prix winner. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting thing because you always saw, <clears throat> excuse me, you saw in, in the Sauber back in the day, in the Force India Racing Point and whatever names that that, yeah. you know, Silverstone-based team held, Checo was getting some awesome race results. You know, our, our first season we had uh, the podium in Bahrain because that was in 14. Um, and then after that, it was, you know, several awesome results and very good underdog performances and then you turn the tables and Checo's in the best car on the grid going up against arguably one of the top drivers at the time I think it's just a it's a difficult measuring stick and I, I really I'm not close enough to what's going on to give you a definitive answer on that unfortunately but I, I won't fluff it you know I, mm. I can't extrapolate but I, I think one of the things that is always clear is Max is able to drive the car a little bit more unstable. And there's a really interesting narrative that a lot of people say that the team develops the car for Max, mm. which I don't think that's true, considering I worked in the simulator from 2018 to 2021. And a lot of that time, we spent a reasonable amount of time trying to help Max's teammate elevate their performance, looking at car setup ideas, car setup philosophies, changes that we needed to make the car for, for Gasly and Alex. Um, you know, I wasn't there so much when Checo 
Um, that wasn't as big of a thing at that time. It was like, you know, we'll let Chekhov get up to speed and find his way. But, you know, that, that was something we spent a lot of time doing. They make the fastest car they can. It's not like they go through this checklist and say, Max, how would you like this car? Mm. And it's disagreed with Checo. And they're like, well, we'll pick the Max option. That's, I've never seen that happen. Maybe it's happened in 22 and 23. But up until that point, between Max and his teammate, when Max was clearly the faster of the two, you never saw that kind of preferential treatment. So that was, that was an interesting kind of uh, myth to dispel. Mm. But so, th- Max, over the years, he has made life very difficult for a lot of extremely good drivers. Absolutely. Gasly, um, Albon. Perez, Ricardo, perhaps mm. is it is it fundamentally that being comfortable with rear instability that is the difference? He he can handle a car that feels like it wants to get away from him, and the others haven't been able to to the same degree. Yeah, I think that's probably on like the the, the first level. That's probably like a, a headline item of that. And at the same time, I think one of the other things we maybe people do give him enough credit for that. Max is insanely consistent. Is is one thing a and B, he, you know, you we look back to into Lagos the other weekend. There's people like you know slowing down in the pit lane. He's like, no, I've got it. My tires are cooling mm. off. I need to get the lap in. He just overtakes them on the grass in the pit lane exit. It's like if you if you take that kind of philosophy and apply it to other things, he's doing that all the time to make sure he's super aggressive in terms of driving. And then in terms of qualifying laps, he doesn't really leave that much on the table too often. This mm. year, he's had several laps where you could clearly see he left something on the table. And he says, uh, Austin was a good example. He's like, yeah, I, I overcooked it at turn one. So he's, I think he's, he's quite honest with himself and he knows where he is and where he isn't. And he's super consistent. And he's, you know, out laps, in laps, always flat chat, no leaving any time on the table. If there were fine margins, he would be, you know, the odds would be in his favor because he's probably pushing a little bit harder than the next guy in the in lap or out lap or, you know, some other you know, subtle thing that might be taken for granted. Blimey. Privilege though, right? To get to work with a talent like Verstappen. He's a generational talent. We'll be talking about him for mm. decades. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but I, th- I think more, I'm, I'm kind of more enjoying watching it from the outside now mm. because I'm not, you know, I do get to see, I get to sit back and enjoy the races. Whereas when I was at the track or at the factory, I was so overwhelmed with whatever my job was. I didn't actually get to take a step back and look at the mm. bigger picture and enjoy that. So Yeah. I, I think with the con- framing it with the context of having worked with him and seeing the initial, you know, couple of years, and then being able to step back and, yeah, and honestly, I'm I'm pretty happy to have avoided traveling during COVID times. That was not fun yeah. for anybody involved. So uh, <laughs> yeah. even if I, if I knew that was coming, like, yeah, I'm I'm out, I'm out, done. Yeah, um, we've spoken a lot about your role as a performance engineer. I think it actually might be helpful just to try and define that. Now I'm guessing it means. You're not designing the car. You're making nope. the car that you've got go faster. Uh, um, you're making the car that you've got go the least slow. <laughs> I think that's that's honestly, you know, because I, I think one of those things when you're, especially me, I, I won't speak on other people's behalf, but me, exp- you know, leaving Formula SA, Formula Student, it's like, I want to go and, you know, I want to go find all the slap time and performance on the car. Formula One teams are huge. They've got so many simulations tool. They've got, they've got so many simulation tools. They've got, great wind tunnels, great CFT, you're not going to just rock up and find a couple tenths a weekend with setup tools and everything else. You are going to have some hardships or something challenging, and you're going to find out how to make that thing not lose you a tenth. You're going to try to lose less than a hundredth or whatever that is. So a performance engineer 
is very similar to the race engineer. And this varies in racing disciplines. Like, for example, in uh, sports cars, you probably won't have a race engineer and a performance engineer. You'll have a race engineer and a data engineer. And that data engineer will do everything from IT networks to updating the ECUs, programming this telemetry. Whereas in Formula One, the performance engineer is focused on performance data. So telemetry comparisons, which is something I spend a lot of time doing now outside of the sport. Um, tools set up like your differential, your brake balance, uh, brakes management, making the brake, making sure the brakes are performing well, uh, giving information to the race engineer and strategist to help understand where the tires are at, where the performance is at, and anything the driver can do to help improve his performance or minimize performance loss effectively. So I, th- I think that's a really good summary of what a performance engineer does. And then the race engineer is focused on the top level stuff, mm. setting the tire pressures, talking to the driver, monitoring traffic, um, and uh, kind of pulling the big picture together. Whereas the performance engineer is all the details and data supporting the race engineer and pit wall to make those key decisions during the race and then offer the most concise and useful feedback to the driver. And so before the race, through the practice sessions, you must just be working hand in glove with the driver, listening to their feedback and working out what you're going to do with the various tools that you have. The basic suspension settings, I'm sure, differentials, maybe there's some aero stuff. Yep. Um, so how reliant are you on what on the driver's feedback? Uh, entirely, entirely. Yeah. Because the, the goal is, the, the pitfall is looking at the data and say, the data says we need to do this. Mm. The, 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 through time, you gain experience of saying, the data says this, the driver says this, which one do you listen to and why? Do you need to push the driver to change their mind? Or is there something you've misinterpreted in the data and you need to better understand what the driver's telling you and look somewhere else to solve that problem? So that's, that's, that's one of those things. Because a lot of the time you say, this is the optimum setup. Mm-hmm. You should drive this. And it's like, no, I can't drive this for these three reasons. And then it's your job to understand the language they're using and convert that into actionable items and then know which system or area of the car you're going to address to improve that deficiency. And that's, that's the fun part is going from the language, which might be abstract and no significant, meaningful, you know, engineering purpose whatsoever. And then converting that into an action that you perform or the race engineer performs, or, you know, informs the aerodynamicists about the behavior of the car that they need to either address on the short term or address in the upgrade coming next month kind of thing. Mm. It's, yeah, it's, I haven't thought about it like that in a while, but it's, <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> uh, it just seems like there are so many variables, so many different elements on the cart that you can toy with. <clears throat> if I'm yep. your driver and I come in in FP1 and I'm furious and I'm dead slow and I just tell you, car's got no front end, what are you going to do? What do you, what's your first sort of port of call there? The first thing you would like that kind of thing, if you've had a disaster free practice one, let's say you every other weekend, you're great. And this weekend, you're absolutely shocking. We've been to this track before. We know mm-hmm. it well. Your A, the first thing is everybody's making sure the things that you're observing or reading are correct. And then the first thing you're looking at is, are the tires actually working? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. That's that's one of those things. And okay, if you're saying the car's understeering like a pig, it's like, what is your teammate saying? Is there anything we can understand between those two? Because you have two pieces of two resources. Like mm. the drivers might have different preferences, but if one driver's in the ballpark and, you know, there's a usual offset between those two drivers, you're checking that. Uh, more often than not, when you have weekends like that, where you're kind of like, what the heck? I didn't expect us to be nowhere. It's very often a tires thing. 
there's i mean a little bit of foreshadowing to this weekend yeah. coming in las vegas but oh, yes there's there's going to be a lot of people uh trusting their guns and then a lot of people being super reactionary mm. and possibly getting it wrong or maybe getting it much better than everybody else who knows it's going to be interesting isn't it it is going to be yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Interesting. Yeah, so the tyres, I mean, we, God, we hear a lot about tyres, don't we? It's, it feels like F1 has become 50, 70, 80% making getting your tires working and yep. keeping them working through a yep. stint so they i guess they have a fine operating window outside yes. of it you're getting no grip yep and if you can key the car in dial the car into that little window it's going to come mm. together and work perfectly yep yeah you see teams like haas is a great example of getting the tires working on a single lap and in the, in the race not only is their pace not great they they also have insane degradation as well mm. we saw mercedes last weekend in brazil uh, with with huge deg and also no pace and maybe that's a little bit of a setup thing in car development but also it's like that's a fundamental tire problem as well it's it's one of those things because the tires are the only thing touching the ground and they are the part of the equation mm. that the teams despite all the modeling and information from pirelli it's the, it's the thing that the teams know the least about genuinely really? yeah it, i mean it, you know it, it there are people that are doing a very good job by, through time, building up a good picture and understanding of that Pirelli tire. Red Bull have done a very good job at it because you see them making strange compromises in qualifying sometimes in order to not chase the final bit of mm. you know track evolution. Is it is, you know at the very last the last two minutes in qualifying three are so fast they're like you know what we'll go out a minute early so we can have clear track so that the driver for sure can hit their warm-up schedule on that tire because it's Mm. not only it's not only like where it's at at the moment Mm. that's important it's how you bring the tire in and you'll hear a lot of people especially red bull on the pit wall during the race talking about make sure to bring these tires in easily because if you cook them too quickly you change the chemical compound (laughs) or the chemical makeup of the tire and then it never produces good adhesion throughout the rest of that stint do we hear too much about tires Ah, uh, is it, are they too are they too big a factor? Mm. Now we're getting into trouble here. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it genuinely is a great question because I think uh, you know you don't want to like let's let's make, make it an obscure example. Let's say every weekend's race performance was dictated by gearbox performance. Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> you know, like genuinely, genuinely, like you know, Formula One, you know 
you know, seamless shift gear boxes are insane. They're basically engaging two gears at once. There's milliseconds between one barrel and one gear engaged and the next barrel and the next gear engaged. It's amazing. We can only talk about it so much. Mm. But like you could at least take a gearbox apart and show people what it looks like. But if every weekend's race performance was like, oh, yeah, their, their gearbox efficiency this week's not very good. You'd, you'd just be like, man, turn this off. I'm going to yeah. go watch something else, man. Yeah. Like, yeah, some, something else. But maybe, I don't know. I think tires are a bit of chaos. And I think mm. um, as long as it's not too artificial, and I don't think this is too bad. I think the tires add a level of uncertainty that make this enjoyable and as, as predictable and inevitable as Max Verstappen winning the season because of Max plus that car is insane. Uh, I, I, I enjoy the chaos that we see with tires and it's much, much similar to where we've got a mixed wet dry weekend. You know, the strategy slash tire scenario is chaos. And I like yeah. that because I can't tell you what's going to happen. Sometimes I can make a good guess and a, a well-informed guess. But uh, yeah, sometimes I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm I kind very, of very enjoy, well said. I enjoy I, that. I, I stitched you up there a little bit, but yeah, you handled and I, that beautifully. And I do agree but, with you, though. Yeah, I do but, agree I, with I you. Though. It's like, do we talk about them too much? I suppose, as you say, if we did just have very predictable tires with very long life and very, uh, very well-known characteristics, we'd just see the fastest car and the fastest driver disappear into the distance every time every weekend instead of having these weekends where singapore red bull Mm. lost these you know mercedes getting closer 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 brazil Mm. lost Mm. you know that those those weekends throw i don't think they're artificial it's a all the teams have the same opportunities to learn those things about their cars and those tires but it's it's the combination of the driver the team the engineers and the way they've interpreted what they've had have they missed or not and I, i like that you can miss i like that you can have the best teams in the world messing up. Mm. Yeah. And there you go. That's the bit of chaos that you get from those pretty tires. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, so is the sort of fundamental set- setup stuff already decided? When when you get to a track on a normal weekend, are you discussing anti-roll bar rates? Are you discussing spring rates? Are you discussing ride height? Or has that stuff basically been set earlier? In the, the teams the teams that have everything locked down they start in a very good window and mm. you know we've got sprint weekends now where you get one free practice session to set up the car mm. um teams they have to be very clear that their hit rate is going to be high when they roll out of the pre-event work in the driver in the loop simulator you know these these simulators are nothing like that you've seen in terms of the consumer stuff you've gone to you know there's the automotive fair the simulator you know the simulator expo the stuff that these teams have is nothing like this stuff. It's a completely different world that I can't mm. talk about. But at the same time, like you're relying on these models being good, this prep work being good, the aero maps and their understanding of the car being good, and they've updated all their models, so it's you know as close as they can get. And there's huge, there's still reasonable uncertainties that you have to understand when you make the decisions off that information. But yeah, I mean, the teams need to rock up with a very high hit rate. And are you probably in the ballpark and ride height? Yes. Are you possibly going to try, you know, say you have a question mark. Is like, is our ride height better when it's a little bit higher? Like, where's the peak? I'm not really sure. We've had some conflicting information last couple of weeks. Okay, what we'll do is we'll try baseline ride height and then ride height plus five mil. Five mil is a pretty big step. Mm. It's, a, it's a huge step, which, you know, when you get out a measuring device and you're like, yeah, yeah, there's there's five mil. And this, this car's gone from fine to undrivable. Yeah. So... <sighs> 
it's, it's mad. It's actually mad when you when you look at it. like one millimeter front ride height is substantial. And but in terms of lap time or what the driver can feel, or both. both? Uh, but it could be both. Um, you know, in terms of rear ride height, can change characteristics massively. In terms of where your peak is, and then front ride height will just add front load, so you need to rebalance that. But in terms of like anti roll bars and stuff, yeah, you're changing those because again, those go back to what you don't understand about the tire and the tarmac and the surface and the conditions. So yeah, it's okay. It's a little bit hotter. We need to be a little bit more stable. So we'll we'll go one step softer on the rear anti roll bar or something. But you 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 kind of have a rough idea, and those are the fundamental things you're chasing every week and it's like okay the car is a little bit more understeer than we thought do we tackle this with camber do we tackle it with mechanical balance like the anti-roll bars are we out in the ride heights a little bit or what it, what is that so yeah that's that's a but some teams will show up like i'm sure mercedes were like what the hell do we do in brazil mm. it's like that's bad that's bad it's not a happy place to be in like everybody's got a, an opinion everybody's looking at the data nobody has any conclusion on where to go mm. That's a tough weekend. It says that they still don't really understand that car, I guess. Um, mm. But I, I love that in this hyper-sophisticated, technologically advanced world of Formula One, there are still guys with spanners dealing with anti-roll bars and camber and yeah. tow and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. It's fantastic because that's yeah, proper good. motorsport mechanical engineering, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 the the bolts and the nuts, yeah. of the whole thing. It's like this is it, and that's one for the things for me. It's like if I went back into motorsport, one of the things I, I would like to do would be to race engineer GT three car, mm. you know, just like a proper sports car. Mm. You know, you've got lots of adjustability, lots of things to play with, and you've got all sorts of other you know compromises like the pro-am driver arrangement and all that but that's a, that's a different story but mm. yeah it is it is very much these cars look and feel quite alien compared to a sports car or a weekend car but you are playing with some of the same parameters you just mm. have a lot more information at your disposal mm. for the better or for worse when have you been amazed by a driver being a being able to sense and interpret a minuscule uh, chassis setup change when have they oh. really amazed you with that feel, you know what? that skill i don't have one of those stories like was it was it raikkonen or or mika hakkonen saying like the chassis was cracked you need to go check it yeah sure enough, the chassis was cracked i don't have any of those stories but there's there's some stuff where it's like the driver's like something's wrong and it's like oh yeah you've got a different anti-roll bar or a, a different side spring in the left and the right we checked mm. that after the session it was wrong or um i think a lot of it just comes from the thing that I think the thing that I think is most impressive is drivers like Max and Fernando's ability to, like you said at the beginning of this this call, is to to drive these things on the ragged edge, but at the same time, which which to me is like with all my focus and concentration and, and years of preparation, I would never reach that because my skill ceiling is very low. Same, but with 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 all of that. They're able to operate this machine that is requires super fast reactions at super fast muscle memory responses, feeling, adapt to that. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, I've just noticed that so-and-so's pitted. I heard them in the pit lane or I, I saw it on the television as I was breaking for turn one. I was like, are you telling me you're watching TV as you're breaking for turn one? <laughs> that's, the kind of, that's the kind of thing. And it's, it's, it's silly, but it is yeah. impressive. It's like... It's it's actually mind blowing. Mm. The same the same thing. There's a picture in Silverstone. Uh, I believe it was Max going through Maggots Beckett's, and he's looking 
outside of the corner as he's turning in. It's not because he has a left hand coming up. It's because he's watching the TV in the middle of the fastest corners on the circuit. I was like, what the hell is that? He's uh, literally, yeah. I think it was an overcast day, so he had a clear visor. You can see him, and he's, you know, he's looking out the corner of his eye up at the television in the middle of the fastest corner complex or one of the fastest corner complex on the formula one calendar is like okay dude eyes on the road (laughs) (laughs) but this is why we love it isn't it because these guys are they're almost aliens to us the their capability in in these machines is just staggering they're heroes that's why i love it that's why i love watching it um so you were you were at red bull for seven years um yeah and i I suspect you felt for a good number of those years that you probably had the best chassis, the best aero, but you think, you had yeah. a, a Renault power unit that um, perhaps wasn't on the pace of the Ferrari of the Mercedes. Yeah, I think that's that's true. I don't think there's. I'd be willing. I'd be willing to f- say that you probably won't find anybody that that's well informed on that. Yeah, that would disagree with that. Yeah, you know, you could you could argue, but I, I think. Uh, chassis was great arrow was pretty good there was some you know both of them had some deficiencies and balance issues at times but they were both pretty good and i think also the other thing we're looking at is we were near the end of a regulation cycle you know the 13 inch the 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 v6 hybrids have been you know plateaued you know Mm -hmm. fry was where they were um then they lost their fuel flow meter mercedes was on top of that and then the Renault was just kind of like ah kind of average Kind of not great, honestly. Um, but anyway, I, having worked with, having seen secondhand being at the factory, not trackside with Honda, having had a Mercedes power unit at Force India and having a Renault, there was a night and day difference between those two and the way they operated um, and the consistency and the preparation compared to the Renault. Like the, the people we worked with at the track were phenomenal. Yeah. The, the engineers, all of them. But it was just something about the way that they were developed. Um, and you know the information they had and the certainty they had about stuff. Mm. It was it was Mercedes and uh, Honda were very, very impressive, and I think the other ones were n- not really on the same level. Yeah, honestly. interesting. And I mean, we can we sit now, don't we, with a very competitive power unit in the back of that Red Bull, and a, what's clearly a phenomenal chassis. That car is just astonishing this year. Did you? Did you get to work closely enough with Adrian New to see his genius at work? No, not really. Like, because mm. at the track, he would be in there. Uh, you know, he was at most of the races. Uh, I think there was one season he wasn't there at every race, but he he was always there. And in terms of like having a detailed interaction with him about solving a problem or something else, no, I didn't really get to experience that. A lot of the people that worked in Arrow would, you know, they would have meetings with him all the time. He was like, hey, Adrian, I've got this idea. Can we talk about this? And, you know, you'd get to, to pick his brain. I never was in the fortunate enough position to get to work super closely with him, which is regrettable a little bit because he's one of those people like, I don't know, Adrian Newey's, the Ross Bronze, like, mm. we're not, um, you know, we're not going to have engineers like that soon. Everybody's too specialized, whereas these guys, you know, started, you know, drawing the cars, designing the cars, and then race engineering the Formula One cars on the race weekends. We don't have those people with that kind of breadth mm. anymore. Mm. And then, then you have people like that who also have immense depth in a certain aspect of or another. It's like, I, I don't think looking at the team and the people I know, I don't think I know anybody that has that kind of depth 
There's some excellent genera- generalists that keep, you know, they have got a good view of everything. They can keep the ship moving in the right direction. You've got Adrian with his technical expertise, you know, refining these these designs to make sure they make sense and they're finding the right performance out of it. But I don't see anybody that can do everything. Mm. It's a very good point. Yeah, because these guys started when they were just a handful of people within a Formula, <laughs> even a Formula One team. Yeah, I mean, Formula, Formula, Formula student teams are now probably bigger in terms of personnel and resources than F1 teams were 30 years ago or 20 years ago, 30 years ago, probably. Yeah. In the 80s, Formula One was like dark ages still, you know, and even before that. So maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I don't think it's too far off. Mm. That's actually wild. we, We love to hold Adrian Newey up as this extraordinary figure, um, as though he deserves all of the credit for Red Bull's current success. But where do you put it? I mean, he's clearly working with a a team of supremely capable, talented engineer, aero engineers in particular. Um, does he deserve, does it basically come from him? Or could you actually now take him away and the Red Bull machine would continue to build amazing cars? Oh. Okay, adding that, so I think if you asked him, I, I don't think, I think Adrian would be quite humble, but I would I would love to hear that question asked of him and i think i know the answer would be it would be like you couldn't do it without all those people a but to come back to that question if you took adrian out of that would that car be where it is today i don't think so wow but you know you know but does he deserve all the credit no because Mm -hmm. no single person can do that on their own like the amount of simulation analysis and finding holes in design philosophies and ideas and like oh this design doesn't work because of this it's not stuff that he can just see in his head and i and i feel like the strength is the over the years the processes they've developed together and ways of working together with you know one of the greatest aerodynamicists in motorsport mm. and then building up an amazing team but there's there's also there are people moving out from that structure as well you know you had dan fallows yeah. going over to aston they've had an amazing start to the season a little bit of a downturn and they look like they've turned it around mm. um you've lost several other key people from that structure but it's like the balance of that seems to be working still because aerodynamically and philosophically as a whole, the car basically does everything this season. It's low drag, high downforce, not mm. too high downforce, you know, but it, but it does literally everything. The, the, the chassis is well balanced. It's good on the tires. You've got two phenomenal drivers. Um, Max obviously way ahead right now in, in all the aspects, but it's, it's the perfect storm really, isn't yeah. it? It's a great team, isn't it? That's the, that's the point. It's a great team. Yeah. Um, so you were you were in F1 for 10 years, most of those trackside going to every race, I presume? Yeah. What's that? Does that take its toll? Yeah. There's a lot, I mean, maybe m- more now than when you were um, in F1, but you must have been doing 20-odd Grand Prix a year, something like that. Yeah, I think it, when I started, it was 19 up to 21, 22. Yeah. And at the same time, I was performance engineering every weekend. We would get, we'd leave the circuit. Like, here's here's a good way to look at it. It's Sunday night at Barcelona. You've, you've, well, not that Barcelona was straight into a test, actually. But say it's another European race in Monza. You finish the race on Sunday. You go get changed in the car park. So you're in your underwear, putting on your travel jeans and a travel shirt on top of being sweaty as hell. You get in the van. You drive to the airport. You get home at midnight. You're in the office the next morning at nine or ten o'clock in the morning, getting ready for the next weekend. That was it the entire year, you know, and then like on the, <laughs> when you didn't have a back to back or something like that, 
Um, and then I was I would be race engineering if we had a Pirelli test midseason or like in Barcelona, if there was a test up, I'd be race engineering the car and the race engineer would go back and start focusing on setting up the car for the next weekend. So that was that was pretty nutty. But now it's even worse than that. You know, we're talking 23, 24 races, triple headers, mm. flyaways, Vegas back to back with Abu Dhabi. <laughs> what? I, I, my, my, a couple of my friends, I still talk to a lot of the guys and gals that work there and it's tough. It's super tough, but. Is, yeah. is that, is that why, is that one of the reasons why you thought enough of this, I'm going to go do something else? Yeah, there's, there's two, there's two aspects to that. When I left trackside to go to the factory, I was like, I've had my fill. Like I always thought I wanted to be a race engineer. Then I was performance engineer. I was like, I don't actually want to be a race engineer in Formula One. Like that, the skills, the, the, the responsibilities, they don't excite me that much because it's a very operational job. You're not doing much of the stuff. You're, you're mm. coordinating all the stuff together. And it's, it requires a very specific set of skills. And I, I learned some of them. Um, you know, I, I learned quite a few of those skills. But at the same time, it's like my interest and passion is in development and learning. I want to learn how to make the car go faster. I want to find performance for the next two months. I want to find performance for the next year's car. I want to develop tools because it's like I've got all these questions that, like, that you never have time to properly answer in the constraints of a weekend. And then in context of going from one event, preparing for the next one to the next event, it was very rinse, repeat, and you don't have downtime to develop tools and processes mm. to, better, to make better decisions in the long term. So that was what I wanted to do. And the simulator performance engineering environment was perfect for that because I could stay close to running the car in the virtual world, be close to what's happening on track, and at the same time develop tools to better analyze and better understand the masses of data that we're getting from both the track and the simulator and help the team make better decisions with that info. And that was, that was you know, very similar to what I was doing then. And that's kind of a very good analogy of what I'm doing now. It's like I... I got tired of Formula One. It, I got forced more into, you know, a very rinse repeat doing that same stuff over and over and didn't have the time to really develop stuff. And I was like, okay, I'll take a break and go do gaming content. And then very quickly I realized it's like, we've got a, uh, we've got a Python API to access all the, a lot of the F1 telemetry. Why don't really? I do this? Yeah. So I was like, why don't I do the exact same thing mm-hmm. that I'm doing now? And instead of inform the team, on how to make the car go faster, mm. I can start dialogues and technical discussions with the Formula One audience as a whole. Mm. I think that kind of like that's brilliant. Wraps the whole thing in a in a loop. It's brilliant, yeah. Because we're talking about one of the most complex sports on the planet, and as a fan, trying to get your head around it, trying to understand it, can be extremely difficult. And with your background, your able, your ability to interpret the data as well, you can you can tell us what's really going on, and that's what you do. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the things. It's like there's like and, and you and you said it at the beginning, and I, I wanted to correct you on that. You said something to the effect of you know, you know, me having a lot of experience make a lot of the journalists and people <laughs> that are discussing Formula One look bad. But at the same time, the way I consume and talk about Formula One is completely different to what other people do. And it doesn't always make it right. Mm. I can't remember, you know, when I'm having a conversation with you, I can't remember stuff that happened three weeks ago, whereas a lot of people will remember that and be able to put that context together quickly and ask really interesting questions. I can't do that. I've got to go away, make a story, write something down, look at all the information, summarize all the facts, and then try to build a story out of that. But at the same time, I still don't remember what happened. You know, all the details of somebody remember something specific that happened three weeks ago at, or five weeks ago to race. I'm like, 
no, I don't remember that. Yeah. So, I'll, you know, I can't, I can't be that quick on my feet with it. But at the same time, I do consume the sport and talk about it through a different lens. Mm. And then I can help give context to, there are a lot of misconceptions and a lot of, I wouldn't say misinformation, but like incorrect assumptions about how things work. Mm. And I think that's one of the great things is like, I can see those and hopefully I can gracefully talk about those and like debunk them a little bit and be like, that's interesting. And I think it makes sense, but let's look at, you know, and I can walk through fundamentals into as deep as anybody has time to, to mm. listen. Mm. And if I don't know that thing, I at least can go away and research it and I can get to the root of it pretty quickly because I don't, you know, my speciality is vehicle dynamics and vehicle performance. And even then, like, I've got a vehicle dynamics textbook behind me because I don't remember that stuff very well. And it's like, that's interesting. Somebody said something I don't agree with. Let's go back to first principles. Does this make sense or not? Mm. And then oftentimes I have to reteach myself things. And my, my old boss said it very well, like having to teach people stuff is a really good way of identifying gaps in your own understanding yeah. of a topic. Because if I, if I, somebody said, well, how does this work? I'd be like, mm, actually, I know how to, I know, I know how to work with it yeah. and I know how to, to get a result out of it. But if you ask me how it works, that's a different question, which is fun. Mm. So particularly during a race weekend and perhaps the build up as well, you're podcasting, you're tweeting, you're on Instagram um your uh, just to get the, the plug in again your accounts are break with three r's um yep. and you're often you're tweeting and you're posting on instagram and so on you're often producing short videos reels or shorts on youtube um mm. where you tackle a topic it might be um flexi wings or it might be how the drs works or something like that what is it that you're fundamentally trying to do? Is it just, is it explain a complicated thing to a passionate audience? Is that fundamentally what you set out to yeah. do? Yeah, I think so. And it's, it's I, th I think if I tr wanted to explain what it does, on the surface of it, it's make Formula One easy to understand yeah. because Formula One seems daunting, intimidating. It's not that difficult, but you have to be able to explain it well. And it's like, okay, that's a challenge for me because I have mm. to go back and relearn a lot of these things so that I can properly explain it. The other thing is, invite a new audience in and show people like even in seasons like this where we have what looks like a single card domination and the narratives that you can derive off of that by traditional means aren't that many but it's like okay well there's some also some interesting stories what does mclaren's you know form change look like and mm. where did it come from and how did it come about and what are the what are the topics we need to talk about and that's you know this video that has five points and then for the people that are interested, there's five videos that are deep dives on every single one of those facets. And it's just finding the time and finding the most interesting threads on that to pull on to, because it is a technical sport and mm. the, the broadcasters are not doing a very good job of telling the technical stories to the audience. Mm. And how do you get young men and women interested in motorsport engineering when they don't know what it is? And that's, I think that's a good summary of what I'm trying to do. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm doing my newsletter, doing the deep dives and all the stuff. You'll see a lot of the subsets of that stuff in my videos. I'm live streaming, like coast, basically side casting my own race commentary, talking about what's happening for pretty much every qualifying in the race over on YouTube and Twitch. And, uh, you know, through that, we're bringing a lot of new people that are like on the fringes or like, you know, drive to survive, mm. got them into it. They're like, what's next? The drive to survive series is over. And I don't find the the, you know, the traditional broadcast very inviting because you know my the barrier to entry is possibly too high mm. or 
I want to ask some stupid questions mm. in, in air quotes. There are no stupid questions. So mm. I think that's a good summary of what I'm trying to do and what I'm enjoying doing the most. And during the weekend, are you pouring over telemetry, over data and figuring out why we're seeing what we're seeing? Yeah. Every, every, every time the session's over, after 30 minutes, I can download the telemetry. I can run through my report template, which has checkpoints to check kind of all the details, like why they were fast, why they were slow. Mm. Are people running high or low downforce? What do people look like on their tires? Um, what is the strategy going to look like for the weekend? And that's the kind of stuff that I'm doing. Yeah, I, I can't get away from it. So unfortunately, there's 24 something races a year. <laughs> so there goes 24 weekends. But at the same time, I do enjoy it. And I feel like I found a place where I can add value to the audience, to the sport. <laughs> I wrote a piece last week for the intercooler on the app and website <clears throat> about being a fan of Formula One in 2023. And Ooh. I think it's fantastic in many ways because there's so much expertise out there and absolutely you fit into this. And there are so many brilliant people explaining what's going on in Formula One. And the access is unbelievable these days. I remember, and I wrote about this, I remember the social media blackout in F1 when Teams literally weren't allowed to post videos from the pits and paddock. Um, but now they do such a good job and you are invited into this world and you can get so close to it if you want to. I love that yeah. side of it. But then on the other hand, <laughs> a lot of the social media around Formula One is fairly bitter and pretty hate-filled, isn't it? Do you see that side of it as well? Absolutely. Um, mm. But basically, my strategy is to mute anybody with the drivers, their profile picture, <laughs> Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton, Charles Leclerc, Carlos Sainz, Lando Norris. I just mute all those people. Yeah. No, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, there, there is a lot of, uh, uh, I think, the tribalism, effectively, which, right. which makes, it, makes it. But I think that's also a side effect of any sport that's reached a certain mass, isn't it? So it's like, mm. you know, like, yeah. Protect, protect yourself. Stay away from the the divisive, toxic discussions. There's, you know, there's been a lot of really upsetting moments in the sport, especially 2021. Like, mm. you know, that that is, you know, a, a black mark on the sport effectively and the way it's been handled and managed and the whole thing. Fine, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, who 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 are we upset at? Mm. Is it teams? Is it people? Is it the organization? I I think it was the organization that people should be upset with mm. more than anything but at the same time yeah you got to protect yourself and stay away from those conversations that will draw you in because they you see them consume a lot of people and it's their entire personality which is yeah. a bit unfortunate considering there's so much good to talk about yeah. it's not all great fine mm. but there's there's so much better stuff to talk about and I, i'd like to i do my best to avoid that and uh, focus on the objectivity mm. and interesting stories that are technical in nature and hell taking the piss half the time as well just <laughs> just for the bats let's not forget to do that yeah um all right so to wrap things up just a couple more questions um what are you hoping for for next year next season next season if i had my prayers answered we would have five different teams win a grand prix next year on merit yeah Oh, you know, I, I, I don't think you're going to have the bottom five punching. Like, I think, you know, Alfa Romeo, Alfa Tari, Williams, Haas, you know, they're, they've got a little ways to go. And I don't think you'll see them close that gap. It'd be, it'd be great if they did. You know, mm -hmm. for example, Aston Martin 
last season, at the end of last season, were shocking. Seb getting knocked out in Q1 almost every weekend and that terrible radio message. He's like, not again. Mm. And then, you know, they were they were frequently on the podium at the start of the season. I think that's what I'd like to see. Because I, th- I think this rule set has done, has achieved what it's meant to achieve in terms of letting cars race for subsequent laps. Unfortunately, the introduction of a regulation set change does throw the pecking order into chaos. Mm-hmm. You know, you had Mercedes make gambles with a car philosophy and they doubled down on it for a second year and it's not paid off. So, you know, that, that can happen still. It's not, that's not the rules. That is mm. teams and potentially bad decisions. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see more race winners. Um, mm. Love to see them scrap the 2026 engine regulations. Really? Yeah, I would, I'd love to see them scrap that. That, that is going to be a mess. I hope it's not. Gosh. I don't want to be, the, I don't want to be that negative, but it's going to, it looks like not good. Basically. <laughs> do you, do you think Red Bull have got the next couple of seasons wrapped up? Are they just too far ahead? Probably. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think you'll see, I think you'll see next season, other teams taking some race wins off of them. Fine. But I, there's nothing that's going to happen until the, the new engine comes out mm. that I think can really destabilize them in terms of where they're at. And, mm. You know, as a result of finishing, winning the constructors' championship, they have less aero development and so on. But they're already so far ahead of everybody else. Like, yeah, the cost cap and the sliding scale of performance still has. I think it's a good idea. But the cost cap also has some very bad things, like uh, personnel salaries, yeah, which is very bad for the sport. And you're seeing a lot of teams brain drain, and you're seeing teams struggle to attract talent because the opening salary for junior engineers, like. They can literally go make double that in other industries out of university. Really? Wow. It's bad. Yeah. Bloody hell. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, it's 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 a huge implication. Mm-hmm. So Okay, final one then. Um we've got the Las Vegas Grand Prix coming up this weekend. The first Las Vegas Grand Prix. It's on the strip, running down the strip. Um it looks like it's gonna be cold because it's November in Las Vegas and it's at night. Yeah. What are we gonna see? Chaos? I think so. Turn turn back to really far back. USA Grand Prix 2012 at Austin. New tarmac is notoriously slick. You know, you, you don't have the, the, the basically the tarmac stones polished down and have the, the bitumen removed from them. So the, the, the level of adhesion is relatively low. Uh, fast forward a little bit further. Turkey 21, yeah. I believe it was. New tur- no, brand new surface there. Slick as shit. I mean, that was a, that was a sketchy race mm. track. As, as the track built up now we've got vegas cold track i think there was there was speculation that the the forecast could be like down at five degrees celsius which is like i think close to 40 fahrenheit just which is cold i think it's gonna be closer to 10 looking at the recent mm. forecasts so that but that's still cold and you have a new tarmac and there's no other support series on the track to help clean that tarmac up and bring that surface in so you're only gonna have that so cold tires you're gonna have a lot of teams you know it's like the car setup should be about right but are they chasing their tails because the tires and track combination aren't producing grip where's you know and, and if they and if they adjust for free practice one and free practice two are they going to be lost by qualifying because the track is completely different possibly you're going to see that happen to some teams for sure um long 1.8 kilometers straight down the strip a couple of probably high speed kinks and low speed corners 
I don't know. I think it's going to be a mess. I really think it's going to be a mess. I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm but wishful. Max is going to win, right? Probably. <laughs> but but it, at the same time, I don't... I think the overtaking ability on this track will be quite straightforward, especially with the straight. And if you've got a top speed and DRS advantage... In terms of setup, I think they'll end up somewhere like they're running in Baku. So, you know, Baku is all these low-speed 90-degree corners yeah. through sectors one and two, and then effectively uh, over two kilometers straight with some kinks on it on the back. And most of the teams optimize their top speed there because you can't overtake in the low-speed stuff. So if you're a bit slower because you don't have as much wing on the car, mm. fine. Then you go onto the back straight, and that's where the happens. And if you can't overtake, you're in trouble. Yeah. If you've got too much drag on, you're just a sitting duck, aren't you? And everyone's going yeah, to yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're going you're to see what happened to McLaren in Belgium this year, where they yeah. didn't have a lower downforce wing. They were fast through sector two, and they just got eaten alive and yeah. down down to turn five. So, Well, bring on the Las Vegas Grand Prix. <clears throat> I'm stoked. Yeah. But until then, Blake, thank you for joining us on the podcast. We'll put um, links to your different channels in the description of this episode. Um, so awesome. thank you for coming on and taking the time to talk. Let's do it again sometime. Yeah, Dan, thank you so much and uh, all the best and we'll see you around soon, man. Thank you, Blake. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.